everybody. Welcome, welcome to show 71 here on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host here from Latvia, joined by my co-host Fernando Ulrich from Brazil. Hey, Matthew. And today we are going to introduce our special guest from Switzerland, Pascal Hugli. Pascal is an independent researcher and journalist from the Swiss-German part of Switzerland. And he's written a very interesting article about the history of Switzerland. Was it socialist? Was it capitalist? Covering the Industrial Revolution period of Switzerland in the 19th century. I thought it was a fascinating piece, so I want to talk about it uh, and Bitcoin and crypto uh, today. So, Pascal, thanks a lot for joining us and welcome. Yeah, hello, Matthew and Fernando. Thanks for having me. It's really cool that I can get on your podcast. So, yeah, really excited. Yeah, really glad to have you on here. Uh, your article was uh, fascinating for me. I mean, I don't know so much about uh, you know Swiss history other than a few you know basic things. Obviously, there's a lot of I think positive privacy, banking, human rights, uh, sort of the stereotypes about Switzerland. Uh, but you know, obviously, when you go farther back in history, how it all got started, a lot of Westerners like myself probably aren't as familiar. So. Want to uh, talk a lot about that today, but before we get to that, uh, why don't we just get a little bit, uh, a brief background about you? Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, I'm also really interested in history. I've been always really interested in it. Um, I didn't study history, actually. I studied political sciences and economics at the uh, yeah, University of Zurich. But uh, as I figured out pretty, pretty quickly, I mean, if you want to know something about the world, if you want to have like a, a quasi real understanding of the world, I think you have to dig into history, you have to dig into all sorts of topics. You know, I think it was F.A. Hayek who once said that a bad economist uh, is recognized uh, by the fact that he's only an economist. So this is then what I really uh, took to heart and I started to explore other topics, you know, and uh, I also figured out that at, at university yourself, uh, you, you can't really learn uh, how the world works. So I started digging all these stuff and all these things myself. And then, yeah, I got into that ever more. And ever since I've been reading a lot and then just trying to digest uh, all the informations and then write it uh, yeah, into articles that people can understand. Hopefully that's what I'm trying to and yeah, educate the people on what I think is a really important topic, you know, uh, understanding the, the century, 19th century. I think it's really, under, really important to understand our time today. So this is really maybe what I'm trying to do, yeah. Fernando and I were actually uh, a guest on uh, Max Hillebrand's podcast, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Bitcoin and uh, and banking and fractional reserve banking and some of these things. And uh, I, I made a point there. It's sort of my contention now, especially you see it with Tether and a lot of these issues in the crypto space right now. In New York specifically, you're seeing a lot of agitation from uh, the government to get control of this industry. And I believe that that ha precisely happened in the end of the 19th century. Uh, certainly in the U.S. and many other countries as well, leading to the founding of uh, the central banks there. But maybe, uh, maybe let's not, you know, get too carried away on those topics yet. Although I think it's fascinating. Let's explore this article. So the article was uh, launched in uh, March of 2019. Alfred Escher and the radical liberals was Swiss industrialization socialist or capitalist. 
It's very, very interesting title. Uh, the article is fascinating. Actually, I saw it before you pinged me and we started talking directly. It's posted on libertarianism.org and other places. So yeah, let's start big picture. What's this article about? Yes, with the article, I was trying to explore the question how socialist was the 19th century in its intellectual and philosophical roots? Because, you know, at first glance, this seems to be a rather weird question since socialism is nowadays associated with trying to curtail industries and regulating them for the greater good. You know, I mean, socialists aren't really the people that are speaking up for corporations and companies. And so you think, uh, how can you think that the industrialization was uh, socialist and not capitalist because the, the industrialists are capitalists, you know. That's what many people think uh, today and believe to be true. But the idea to explore this topic came from a book by Friedrich August von Hayek, you know, uh, it's called The Counter-Revolution of Science. And in it, he draws some very interesting parallels between early socialists uh, and early socialist thinkers and their, and their view on how industry or, or how the industry and the economy on broader terms um, did develop uh, in the 19th century, you know, and contrary to modern day thinking, socialism at that time was all about promoting and actively developing industries, you know, leaving aside any concerns about the environment or any other socially undesirable consequence. So it was all about if you want to make omelets, you have to break eggs after all, so, you know, uh, and this um, perception today obviously changed 100% because at some point it became obvious that socialism would never achieve this goal. But in the 19th century, uh, this was really, I think, uh, the prevalent goal by many socialists. So, uh, and this was really interesting thought that I read uh, in Hayek's book. So I started to look uh, at Switzerland and Alfred Escher, you know, uh, he's the epitome of entrepreneurship and capitalism in Switzerland. And uh, also with him, I found some very interesting and enlightening parallels in continuities that would really lead back, you know, that could be traced back to these uh, early socialist thinkers and their thoughts. So, yes, uh, you might ask, uh, what uh, was the, so socialist about their thinking, you know? And I think it was the way these early thinkers, uh, of which Henri de Saint-Simon was really the most prominent one, approached the question of developing a society and its industry, you know? One common theme was that they were really focusing uh, around banks, you know, uh, heavily opposed to what we might call contemporary socialists, you know, um, uh, because they are really, would, I would argue, against banks. But these early socialists, they were really in favor of banks, you know, and they would not bash them, but instead uh, they would call on them to finance development at all costs, you know, by, by doing credit expansion as well, because one of their real objectives were or was um, to have banks give credits out to every man and every citizen so every man and every citizen would become an entrepreneur. This was really the goal and uh, we know that later on this didn't turn out the way they wanted it to be. Men or didn't uh, become entrepreneurs but uh, they became consumers and uh, yeah that was kind of a problem so we're in the consumerism of today but this was really I think this uh, can be traced this sort of thinking can be traced back to these early socialists so uh, with this whole angle um, with this new angle that I uh, 
the kind of saw when I did my research, uh, it really started uh, or it really led me to the conclusion that I have to question the narrative that the 19th century industrialization in Europe is somehow an outburst of capitalism par excellence, you know. The reader may expect sort of a uh, direct answer. Was it socialist or capitalist? It does seem that you... Uh, you know, maybe ask more questions uh, at the very end of the article, but let's not get to those conclusions yet. I mean, what what are your definitions of uh, something that's more socialist or more capitalist? Yes, the whole question on socialism versus capitalism, I think it's a very, very complicated topic and I love to talk about it, but there's so many, many um, complicated uh, things one has to grasp, you know, that it's really hard to make a definite uh, assessment of what is what, you know. <laughs> so because through history, capitalism and socialism have been so intertwined as well, you know, as ideologies, you might be able to clearly separate them from each other. But in the real world, things are uh, much more complicated and it's hard to find a pure version of either. You know, so maybe as a mental help, one could say that capitalism could be summed up under the terms of catalytics, you know, a term also coined by Hayek and his teacher Ludwig von Mises. And uh, it's understood as the state of mutually beneficial interaction by human beings that emerges out of their own making, you know. So there is nobody uh, like uh, forcing them or somehow trying to organizing them into, into their actions. Um, so this is what I would define under, under capitalism. And then in contrast, socialism, I would say, is broadly defined in this very very simplistic, uh, or I think, yeah, sure, it is very simplistic, but I would still define it as the approach or the endeavor to organize human society as opposed uh, to the approach of letting it emerge itself, you know. So uh, I think this is very inherent tendency of human beings after all, so that they want to organize, that they want to do something, you know. You can't just leave things to yourself. You want to organize, you want to control, you want to steer the economy. So uh, because of this tendency that I think we human beings uh, naturally have, I think it's no wonder that many times throughout history we have seen socialistic endeavors and attempts come into existence and go out of existence as well uh, because it uh, after all isn't really uh, really true to our nature but uh, I mean yeah one prominent example that I have been reading about lately is the municipal socialism of the 19th century in, in England you know um, maybe let me describe this to you uh, because of industrialization, some people got very rich, you know, fast uh, because of credit expansion and things we're maybe talking about a little later on. But at the same time, you had what is today summarized under the term the social question, you know, it was the debate that was going on about poverty that seemingly existed or that existed, not seemingly, but it existed within this newly industrialized cities, you know, in England. Uh, you had slums emerging and that were built and they were really big, you know, and they were filled and crowded with these people, you know, um, and these people were all living under very horrible conditions. And I think this was the result uh, of people 
people from rural uh, areas flocking into cities because they saw the opportunity of moving up the social ladder, you know. So they accepted these bad circumstances in these slums, you know. And I think it's interesting. It was again uh, August Friedrich von Hayek who pointed out that there were so many poor people because for the first time in history, these poor people actually wouldn't die off but they would be able to survive because of the industrialization and the wealth that was created and taking place, you know, and uh, was raising people's standards of living, even if uh, it rose at a rather slow place, if we look at it from today's perspective, you know. But yes, as a reaction to these slums, you had some influential people starting to take action and building up what was later called municipal socialism, you know. So waterworks, gasworks, and many other things were put into the hands of these local municipalities to be organized by them. So you ironically had rather wealthy industrialists, or, or we could call them capitalists if you want, uh, that implemented what is today called municipal socialist city projects. You know, and uh, the most famous one for anybody who wants to read up on this uh, was uh, Joseph Chamberlain. Uh, he was really the one who concocted this idea and then really put it into practice, you know. And to be honest, I'm, I'm kind of sympathetical um, to this kind of socialism of local self-governance within the municipality, you know. It's an endeavor to own and operate water and gas works collectively, but it was also done in somewhat entrepreneurial ways, you know. So I think this is kind of interesting and, and sympathetic uh, uh, to me. Um, yeah, interestingly enough, uh, this kind of municipal socialism was opposed by Lenin, you know, who condemned these endeavors because municipal socialism meant socialism in matters of local government and would only be uh, benefit a few or would only be benefit uh, would only benefit a few. So there you have it. It was navigating through these ideologies of Marxism, Leninism, socialism, capitalism, I think is very hard, you know, and uh, my approach is just trying to approach history as value neutral as possible and see how things really uh, unfolded in the real world and then, uh, yeah, just try to describe them and that's also something I was trying to do with this article. Let me jump in and, and perhaps ask you something regarding a passage in your articles that I I found very interesting. Perhaps you could elaborate a little bit more on that. Regarding how Friedrich Engels, he saw the capitalists of the time, like Alfred Escher, uh, he welcomed these people as being part of the whole process. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Uh, yes, Fernando. I think these are very interesting words by Engels, you know. I think he really captured the most prominent contradiction that would define many people who called themselves liberal in a classical sense, you know. I mean, many of these people were really in favor of economic development and progress. But what they were confronted with in Europe, in many places of Europe, especially in Germany, Holland, but as well uh, in Switzerland, was a very distributed landscape, you know, uh, that seemed to be very chaotic and, and backwards and everyone was doing things for themselves and they, no, they were only co like cooperating 
when it was necessary and you know it was formed by thousands of principalities back in the middle ages you know this is what europe is known for today still having been decentralized and having had competition among city-states and principalities that also helped to develop europe into what it is today you know but these diverse and distributed landscape or this diverse and distributed landscape was ever more put under pressure with the national nationalistic tendencies that started emerging in the late 18th and then in the 19th century you know so in order to develop in a more national sense you necessarily had to go against the old order against this old distributed order that seemed so backwards and that need to be reformed you know and this is why so many radical liberals like Escher that I describe in my article turned out to be centralists in the end even though what we think uh, they are they were capitalists and they were industrialists and they were liberals radical liberals you know but they were naturally drawn to the centralization because they saw it as a way to develop the country you know uh, so um, it was these liberal-minded classical people uh, who were pushing for centralization uh, and this I think is an inherent contradiction that Engels saw and uh, and others and and this is what they meant by saying that we don't have to care about liberals because uh, their executioner would already stand at the door because they saw this contradiction would actually blow them up uh, you know because uh, they wouldn't be able to sustain this I mean uh, somehow economic uh, interest and centralization that wouldn't really work so I think this is really what they already recognized back then a little bit back to the the, the point about what true socialism is uh, you know, obviously, you know, even today, this is continuously debated, different characters on, on each side uh, today, YouTube discussions and big debates, so on and so forth. A lot of these sort of uh, revisionists or people that are say that they're true socialists, uh, my problem with them, and obviously this is a perspective of having ancestors, you know, that are basically, you know, ruled by the communist dictatorship of the Soviet Union and sent to uh, Siberia and so forth. My problem with uh, people that talk uh, just sort of nonchalantly about socialism is usually twofold. The first one is they always say that the Soviet Union uh, or Maoist China or wherever um, wasn't real socialism. That's number one. And then the second one which they don't say this in so many words, but it's basically our guy wasn't in power. We didn't have the right leader to make that happen. Uh, one person I'm thinking of who many people regard as like a genius, perhaps he is, you know, he's written 100 books, but Noam Chomsky, he's a famous socialist. He says this all the time when he's talking about socialism is basically uh, what the Soviet Union was doing, what Lenin was doing. Uh, you know, he broke from some of the true socialists like Panikot and Trotsky before uh, Trotsky got exiled from Soviet Union. Like Lenin didn't bring true socialism to the Soviet Union. And then it basically becomes a leadership question after that. You know, we didn't have the right guys in power. Uh, so this question of leadership, maybe the second part there, I think you've already addressed what's tr maybe a, what's a true socialism. You can talk about it a little bit more if you want. But the, the second part, uh, all of history, it comes down to a few leaders, right? I mean, <laughs> Napoleon, Lenin, Stalin, Marx, just a few leaders that apparently usher in these movements. Um, and obviously, I think what we're, where we're going to go at the, towards the latter part of this episode is perhaps some of the beauty of open source software, which you've written about. 
But uh, what are your thoughts here on this idea of uh, leaders in these movements? Yeah, it's uh, two interesting points that you raise here. I mean, uh, it's it's always the same, you know, with, with socialism. What I also kind of... Um, yeah, disapprove of is that they're saying, as you already said, yeah, it was just not the right guy. You know, we didn't have the right leader. It didn't. He didn't have the right mindset. And and the problem I have with this is that it it bases a lot of trust into one single human human being. You know, eventually it's always, um, yeah, you, you you draw it back to to a person. And and I think um, this this high regard for people. Uh, in a in a more abstract version, you know, I I can't really think, uh, yeah, that this will ever work because you know, uh, human beings they are so uh, complex after all, and I mean, uh, even if you have like a whole ideology in your mind and you say, uh, if I can just, you know. Um, really deliver on this whenever you go out into the real world you know from your theoretical field you you figure out hey the world is not that easy and then you have to devi deviate from from all your principles and in the end you yeah you end up being in a place where you would have never thought yourself to end up in you know so this is really my main point i i have here and 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 yes uh, i'm totally with you i mean um, it's always been in history, probably a few a few people who really uh, had this power, you know, that was given by them by, then I would say, uh, socialistic tendencies where they just have too much power to then really corrupt the system, you know, and we know that too much power really corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, you know, and to the point where you where you mention about. It's not. It, it hasn't been real socialism, you know. I think it's also pretty interesting, because I would argue, yeah, real socialism. As soon as you try to implement real socialism on a scale as on a nationalistic scale, you know, or on a on a, on a scale as big as the Soviet Union, it is it is bound to fail, you know, because human beings are so heterogeneous, you know, they're so different, and it's really hard. To then say, yeah, we have to transform human beings in, into good human beings, and we, we have to transform them in the way they have to be, and they all have to be alike. You know that never works. You know, so as I said, uh, with this municipal socialism in the beginning, which is maybe more kind of like self governance and, and really on a local level, I'm kind of sympathetic to that idea. You know, because then uh, you you just have like your own little society, and and you you keep it kind kind of to yourself you know but as soon as you try to blow it out of proportion you know and this is probably what happened with with the nation state you know and and with uh, the tools we're probably alluding to later in the episode episode you know uh, finance where the state started intervening and then you had the money creation that really helped you to blow this whole thing out of proportion then i think it's always bound to fail so it's not about it's not true socialism it's just that on these uh, epic uh, proportions it will never be able to to be successful maybe we can switch gears now since we're just uh, talking about money creation and credit expansion Regarding this uh, this aspect of banking, I, I found it fascinating how you wrote about how the Swiss banks were also 
creating money, so expanding credit through what you called bank acceptances. So the not real bills, it would be equivalent to bills, but not real bills, not backed by goods. But and you, and you, you mentioned that this is similar to what we have today with banks creating money, if, if I understood it correctly. But there is one, I, I think there is one main distinction is that banks back then, they were able to extend credit and, and issue these bank acceptances. But in the end, they were liable and they had to redeem them and they had to hold at least some form of reserves and there was no one that would be able to bail them out and rescue them in terms of in, in times of illiquid illiquidity. But nowadays we do have this person, this entity, the lender of last resort that is able to rescue failing banks. So this is one big distinction. But I, I just I found it fascinating how this uh, this also played out in in Switzerland. If you could elaborate more on this uh, how banks were issuing bank acceptances, this is really interesting. Yes, I'm totally with you on that. I think today we have the central entity in the form of central banks that can save your ass whenever you mess up, you know. And uh, yes, in the 19th century, there was no such things and banks were really left to themselves and had to be more cautious. That is totally true. But still, I think uh, things were already back then kind of overstretched and were blown out of proportion because, you know, I mean, expanding credit and coming up with interesting ways to finance the economy, I would argue there's nothing wrong about that. You know, I mean, in, 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 in the circles I commingle with, there are many people who would say debt is bad, credit is bad, you know, everything needs to be 100% backed. I would argue, no, I don't think uh, this was a natural way things in the real world develop, you know, because people, they wanted to experiment and uh, they wanted to take the risky business of banks and to finance stuff because, uh, yeah, it's just the way uh, and the natural tendency of human beings, again, to take risks, you know. Uh, after all, I think what is important is that whenever you finance something, um, yeah, you have to be able to go bust and then and bear the consequences of your failures, you know. And this is certainly something that uh, wasn't happening already back then as it is not happening today, you know. So many banks in the 19th century had a very important role in developing industries and economies, you know. I would just argue that their activities were already back then exaggerated and overstretched. And uh, yes, I would argue also because of the intellectual under paintings and uh, thoughts that I described that came by these early social thinkers, you know, that were pushing for credit expansions uh, no matter what, you know. So I think this was also uh, having an effect and uh, contributed to the fact that banks were really blown out of proportion already back then. So yeah, you, you spoke of the bank accepts, you know, uh, I think they were a very risky thing. Uh, obviously, the way they worked was that banks gave them out to companies so these companies and, and firms could finance their expenses with these bank accepts you know in German we call them bank accepte and yes uh, uh, but these obviously in contrast to real real bills you know uh, were not really producing uh, tangible goods you know the banks they were producing tangible goods like uh, a producer of bananas or, or, or of other eatable goods was producing so um, they would be selling uh, or they weren't producing any tangible goods they could be selling in order to create revenues uh, 
as I said, as a producer of real goods would, you know. So banks gave credit uh, to railway stations and railway companies. I mean, uh, it was more railway companies that would build up railway lanes, you know. But I think these uh, this business was very risky because, as I read by another economist, I mean, in the 19th century, these lanes, these railway lanes were sometimes built up alongside each other, two, three or even more lanes. And these were built by different companies and one was just uh, uh, living out and see uh, which will eventually survive, you know, and, and, and be uh, beat all the other competitors. Uh, but uh, as you can see, uh, not only, or I mean, uh, there will eventually only be one uh, lane and the other threes would uh, then be shut down because, yeah, it would otherwise be very inefficient. So uh, it was obvious that some projects will fail and then banks will also fail because they've given credit to these railway companies. And so it was an inherently risky business. And, and I think, uh, yeah, so this uh, what then also led uh, to the, I would say, to the fact that Uh, these banks went bust and then people as a reaction said okay hey because things went wrong you know uh, we have to bail them out and we have to see that things don't go wrong anymore so we have to regulate them we have to socialize losses and these things were already done back then you know and I think that's the wrong approach because uh, it's obvious that banking is a uh, inherently risky business and that things can go wrong and they must go wrong and And uh, as long as you don't blow these things out of proportion, I think uh, it can also be that way. But because in the 19th century, because of this nationalistic tendency that I already mentioned, everything became bigger and bigger and it was implemented on a greater scale, you know. And then obviously, if something is implemented on a great scale, uh, you can't let stuff go bust because then too many people would be affected. And uh, this is probably the real problem of size you know uh, this is also because as I mentioned already be why I think socialism would never work you know uh, because uh, yeah um, it, that's just the way uh, as, as soon as you try to develop and, and implement socialism on a great scale you know Uh, yeah, things go wrong because uh, yeah, it's just not uh, it should not just should not it's just not made to be this way. Hey, everybody, just want to take a moment to tell you about our product sponsor for this episode, Crypto Tradesmith. If volatility and FOMO is just too much for you, Crypto Tradesmith will help. By signing up for Crypto Tradesmith, you'll get risk management tools and over 50,000 trading pairs to help you manage your portfolio. Price your portfolio in dollars, price it in Bitcoin, price it in Litecoin, as you wish. You'll get custom email and text alerts when a volatile point or trailing stop is triggered. You'll also get access to Dr. Richard Smith's proprietary green, yellow, red light indicators and a ton of other great tools such as Portfolio Risk Analyzer and Rebalancer. This is risk management software. This is not day trading software. It's amazing. We endorse it. And by the way, if you use it, you can manage big picture Bitcoin portfolio strategies like stop loss and buy orders completely off book. Your exchange will never know what your strategy is. So it tandems very well with managing your own keys which you should do. So sign up right away on our special 
special offer page, cryptovoices.com slash tradesmithoffer, cryptovoices.com slash tradesmithoffer. You'd be helping the show out, cannot endorse the product highly enough. And also check out episode 55, where we interview the founder of Trade Stops and Crypto Trade Smith, Dr. Richard Smith. So how would you sum up uh, Esther's view of the uh, Swiss banking system as it developed and as you uh, wrote about in your article? I mean, are there any sort of concrete summaries you can provide us uh, here? Uh, you, you, you talked about the credit uh, mobilier, I guess that is, and I think in relation to Fernando's question as well, but what were his main principles uh, regarding the banking system? What really struck me and that was really interesting is that Escher, he um, went to France, you know, and France was really at the time, you know, I, I also developed this in my article a little bit. There was a, there were these early utopian uh, socialist thinkers, you know, Henri de Saint-Simon was probably the most famous one who, you know, he wrote a whole book and many papers about how he wants to transform society and, and really how banks play uh, important role, you know, a pivotal role at the end and that banks uh, will be the ones that are centrally planning industries, you know, uh, in all of France. And this is really um, Saint-Simon who came up with all these thoughts, you know, he himself wasn't really um, successful in implementing these thoughts, you know, but they were already like his successors, you know, uh, people that came after him, uh, the most famous ones were probably the brother Pereres, um, they were of Portuguese um, heritage, and, and then they, they, um, they were the ones that took these ideas and really developed this new type of bank, you know, called the Credit Mobilier. And this bank was really predicated on on the fact that there was lots of credit expansion going on, you know, because they wanted to develop as fast as possible. Because also because all over Europe, you had really this competition going on. You know? So you had to be the first one, you know, so you had to be uh, the one that really gets the farthest, the fastest, because then you have a edge over all the other uh, or all your other competitors. So this was the credit mobiliere. And then I think uh, what really was really interesting is that Escher, or from what I read, he was influenced by their thinking, you know, and, and he came back to Switzerland with the like the precise, uh, like the term, or it was really determined to come back and say, hey, let's move Switzerland into a country which is not backwards anymore, which is really connected to Europe. And, and for this connection, we need the railway stations. And only with the railway lanes and stations, we can then develop economic um, uh, prosperity. And so this is what really, I think, shaped his thinking after all. So it probably wasn't really like this really ideological thing where he says now we need to have like socialist banks, you know, Credit Mobilier, who, who uh, then will um, develop uh, our nation. It was probably more pragmatic, you know, just like an entrepreneur probably thinks, you know, he's looking into the world, he's seeing, hey, these banks in France, they seem to function, you know, it's really functional, it works. So we have to copy this, you know. And I think um, this is really the point with these systems. Oftentimes they seem to work in the beginning and then their, their marginal productivity just declines uh, over time. But uh, at first you, you think it really works. So uh, let's copy it. I want to have this too. 
And I think uh, maybe we come to this later on. I mean, in the beginning it worked. And nowadays, I would argue the marginal productivity is already this low. So this is why we're having all these distortions. But in the beginning it worked. And so, yes, this is what Escher was all about. Just being pragmatic and, and look forward looking. I liked your conclusion as well. I'll, I'll quote it. You wrote uh, just very simply in conclusion. The expansion of credit money with all its manifold distortions and encumbering consequences for society at large may be the most terrible as well as the most fruitful catastrophe of the modern financial era. Do you have anything to add to that? And then maybe in your answer, we can try to pivot it over to, to Bitcoin. Yes, a fruitful catastrophe or a Faustian bargain. Yes, I, I really think that it was a Faustian bargain, you know, after all, a trade-off, because you can either approach things more cautiously and you can try to evade credit expansion, try to develop an economy that is more stable and that might even have a more equal distribution in wealth. But then I think the total level of wealth would just be lower after all, you know, because the dynamics wouldn't be that hard in a, in a system that is more cautious and that isn't really developing or is really, isn't really based on credit expansion. You know, because what we've seen in the 19th century is really this huge spike, you know, if you look at the scale, you know, I mean, within the last 200 years, it really exploded, you know, our wealth. And I think uh, this is really due to our system as it exists today and uh, so we could argue whether we would have a more stable and better system without credit expansion then yes um, it would uh, probably be better in some aspects it would be um, a little be or there would be a little less prosperity I think uh, because we as human beings are not only materialistic uh, you are people so this uh, would be perfectly fine with me and I think with other people you know but after all it's, it's just a trade-off and uh, this is what people usually forget you know also when they criticize the state and their monetary or its monetary system you know and the financial system I think uh, I can really see the distortions that are uh, prevalent today and that we are really having in our system and I wouldn't really say that they're not uh, uh, that they're not bad, you know, they're really bad and they're a lot more than just economic um, distortions. I think they're all cultural and societal distortions, um, mainly because of our negative interest uh, interest rate um, environment that we're living in today, you know, and this is totally not a free market um, consequence, you know. So I would obviously say, yes, uh, these are the distortions and they weigh heavily on us, but still, you know, um, uh, yeah, I just want to acknowledge that our system also created a lot of wealth and it, and it keeps on creating still. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's an interesting fact. Uh, so this is just me trying to approach it as value neutral as possible and saying, well, it is fruitful. It is the fruitful catastrophe that we have been talking about and that I tried to describe in my article as well. So I hope you know what I mean. Yes, uh, I certainly do, and and also a pivoting away to to crypto. Maybe I can use this the same quote, and and ask you: Do you think that Bitcoin is the most terrible as well as the most fruitful catastrophe for modern fiat money? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting um, yeah way to put it. I mean, for for fiat money, yeah, it might be the most. Uh, 
destructive thing that ever came along its way because I really have uh, or the belief or maybe it's a hope or belief or, or just whatever it is eventually I can't really say but I think it, it really is um, something that is going to challenge uh, our monetary system as it uh, has developed and exists today so I think it's it's certainly um, a powerful tool that uh, can uh, disrupt the whole thing you know and then I, 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 I kind of say okay if I now know um, this is going to destruct our monetary system, then many people oftentimes they would celebrate and say, okay, cool, we're going to break the neck of the stage, you know, we're going to break the neck of monetary expansion and everything is going to be better. I would be a little, be more cautious and say, we just never know, you know, uh, it could turn out that eventually having a inflationary, distortionary monetary system that we have today is as good as we ever get, you know, it's just, um, yeah, it's in our human tendency that we will never be able to really have a perfect uh, paradise here on earth, you know, and maybe um, um, a way or a world in where monetary um, our monetary system as it exists today is disrupted might be a more dystopian universe or a more, a more dystopian world you know I can I don't wish uh, it to be this way but I think it would be too too cocky to say uh, that with Bitcoin everything is just gonna turn out well you know because for that I would argue the world is just too complicated but nevertheless I think, um, yeah, it's it's a way, it's a, it's a reaction to the system and it's just um, pretty plain obvious that something like this must um, come out of, uh, yeah, must arise, you know, and challenge the status quo. So I hope uh, this is an answer that you make sense. Absolutely. It's quite interesting right now as we're chatting. Obviously, uh, the excitement is back and it's usually brought back by speculation and price. Uh, you know, when we even started chatting during this interview, the year-to-date uh, price of Bitcoin uh, was plus 100%, and right now it's plus 110% year-to-date. Uh, price is screaming uh, back up close to 8,000 as we are doing the interview. And, you know, counter that with, um, there were some comments made by a Democrat in the U.S. last week, Brad Sherman, I believe uh, is his name from California. Uh, very much, uh, just obviously speaking to uh, Bitcoin is damaging the dollar, its power, the Federal Reserve, uh, and it always under the cloak of tax evasion and money laundering. Um, but really, it's 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 they even say it, you know, now quite openly. It's it's about the power of the dollar and the Federal Reserve in New York. What do you think about some of the things that are? happening lately in, uh, in the Bitcoin space. I mean, Sherman's statement, I found it really interesting because I mean, I've never really heard like a politician or a statesman or whatever he is, like being so open and outgoing about the power of the dollar, you know, and how this whole thing like benefits the United States, you know. I read uh, maybe also a couple of months back, you know, a Chinese military officer 
who was really complaining about this, you know, about the gold standard that was, uh, or that, like, uh, in the 19 or 1971, uh, the US and the world was cut off uh, from gold, you know, and that this really allowed uh, the US to go beyond, you know, and then also finance its wars and then just to eventually, like, export their dollars um, uh, in order for real goods that uh, they then can consume, you know. But this was a Chinese guy, you know, uh, who is really going against uh, the U.S. And this is pretty obvious because uh, China is not the... Uh, the part that is benefiting but now it's it's been like a US guy who's uh, openly declared that uh, we need to have this power to extort everybody else you know to really be to exert this power over everybody else and I think this is also a point that is not going to be uh, taken that well by other state officials, be it uh, state officials from Russia, being a state official from Japan or whatever, you know, just I think eventually this is really interesting that the geopolitical sphere, you know, uh, could also intensify uh, within the next uh, few years. And uh, yeah, so I'm kind of of the uh, thinking that Bitcoin might be the laughing third at the end, you know, who says, okay, you got can fight each other I as a non-centralized or decentralized network going to be the one profiting from this so this is uh, I found a really interesting piece I don't know how you guys see this I, I agree I think 100% also with the implications uh, of Bitcoin but even uh, moving further from the implications to fiat money I also think there are some implications to the activity of banking proper and since you've been reading, been, been writing about it, I was wondering what, what are your thoughts on how Bitcoin might affect banking? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a very interesting question as well. I mean, I think a lot of modern banking uh, hinges on the fact that there's still a central bank, you know. So, um, I mean, it was uh, Seyfedina Moose who wrote this really um, influential book, you know, where he says Bitcoin is eventually... Uh, uh, yeah, a decentralized or like uh, is a threat to the central banking system because it's a decentralized version of, of, of creating money, you know, and it's uh, Bitcoin is the main competitor or its main competitor are our central banks, you know, and I think this is probably, yeah, in the long run true, uh, but then this will also have implications on, on commercial banking, you know, I think if, if there's no central bank anymore or if the power of central banks really diminishes, this is going to be really detrimental to commercial banks who really, as you already elaborate, Fernando, needs this uh, third party, this lender of last resort, this market maker for all their um, crappy papers that they're holding. Uh, most of them are also government bonds, you know, that they can then uh, offload them to central banks if... Uh, things get tough. So um, if then um, this kind of force uh, is drawn away, you know, and it's not prevalent anymore, then I think uh, central bank or, or banks are going to have a, a much harder time, you know, because it's not only Bitcoin. I mean, banks are under attack from so many other, uh, also within the political system or the traditional system already, you know, we have all these fintechs attacking and then sure, these are still... Um, 
working within the old uh, legacy system, but they're attacking, you know, there are political attacks on banks. You know, we had in Switzerland this uh, vote on fool or sovereign money, you know, um, that could be implemented uh, and then uh, eventually at the expense of banks and, and reinforcing Uh, the power of the central bank. And I mean, there's so many um, attacks being launched on banks and, and Bitcoin is just only one of them, maybe the strongest after all. But I think banks uh, will really lose their ground ever more, you know, because I also deal with a lot of bankers. And uh, if I can really, I mean, it's just anecdotally, you know, uh, but I don't know if you uh, sense this as well. When I talk to bankers, they're oftentimes they have no clue, you know, and they're just sitting in their offices and saying, yeah, this is not, not going to affect us, you know, and we're just going our way. And I think uh, that's probably not going to be that way. I mean, um, I, I, Andreas Antonopoulos, he said it pretty well that banks are probably still going to be around in a couple of years, but they're just going to be like uh, fax machines of today, you know, which are uh, like relegated to, to crappy uh, bureaucracies and shady hospitals, banks will, yeah, will be of no interest anymore to anyone. So I don't know, it's, it's a harsh uh, vote, but I think banks are really under pressure a lot. I totally agree uh, with what you're saying. And I think it is very interesting to see the nature of banking. Obviously, in the last 10 years, you know, since the 2008 slide, uh, there's been huge regulations and regulatory changes that have come into the banking system have only crippled it even more beyond it, how crippled it already was, you know, from, from the central bank overhang. But uh, sorry, just yeah. yeah, just just one point on this. I mean, regulation is one thing, and you mentioned, and I hear I hear so many bankers complaining about it. And I mean, uh, yes, it's 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 really uh, tying their neck, you know, and even even tighter, you know. Uh, besides the fact that some regulation is probably also good because it protects them from from competition, you know. But I mean, it's a, it's a hard factor that's weighing on them pretty hard. Yeah, but I mean, we haven't mentioned all the the negative interest rates today, you know that are so or like heavily absolutely infect or affecting banks you know like like crazy i mean if i talk to these people they say hey um uh, yeah with every month that passes and i mean we in switzerland we have these negative interest rates you know it uh, weighs uh, like crazily on them you know because uh, yeah and, and they hope to to be relieved anytime soon. And I don't think that's going to come either, you know. I think we're going to go more into negative territory because there's just no way out, you know. And so uh, this is also a factor that is really sagging at their power. I think an interesting view then on how this, uh, you know, new digital system comes about and digitization, as you mentioned in your article, compared to industrialization of the 19th century, Now we're, we're facing true digitization of everything, uh, but obviously we're interested in Bitcoin and money here. Um, so let's maybe ask a few questions. What, what are the leaders in that community going to look like? You know, obviously um, we have Satoshi and the white paper in Bitcoin, but then from there, um, you know, the Bitcoin community has been rancorous and I think, I think properly rancorous about staying decentralized, not having a true leader. Uh, obviously that debate is, uh, is long and, and, and probably in full could be reserved for another time. But we have the opportunity, at least it seems like we have the opportunity to bring in 
a Bitcoin era that can be truly decentralized without any leaders. Um, any any thoughts on that compared to you know some of the the parallels that you've drawn out from your article in Switzerland? Yeah, I mean the point about leaders. Uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean um, Satoshi is probably yeah the most um, important one for sure because he's also the one that launched it. And I mean the the thing or or the way he launched it is just perfect. You know, being anonymous, so uh, he can be kind of like this uh, mythological creature. You know, who somehow like uh, yeah gave us Bitcoin and uh, yeah, it's now in this world and he's withdrawn, you know, and this is a, I think it's a really interesting and, and also important point that he did it this way. Because after all, I think, and this is also something we're seeing within the crypto sphere, you know, people, they are naturally drawn to celebrities, you know, and to authority. I think it's something within us, or I would argue within maybe not all of us and or maybe not to the same extent, you know, but we as people, we are somehow drawn. We strive for for authority, or that's at least uh, how, how I feel sometimes uh, with myself, you know, and with people I talk to. And I think that I've already uh, figured this out also in the crypto sphere, you know, I mean, one of the most, um, um, I would say, prominent um, example is the Bitcoin SV uh, debacle, you know, the fiasco we had where like so many people are clinging to this one guy, you know, I don't even want to say his name, but he's really, um, yeah, for so many people, uh, it's just, you know, he's, he's like a god, <laughs> I could say eventually. Um, but yes, also in the, in the broader community, you know, uh, I mean, I already mentioned Andreas Antonopoulos. I think he's a great speaker. I learned so much from him, you know, but it still somehow strikes me or that uh, he's coming to Switzerland in a few uh, months, I think, or maybe uh, in a few weeks already. And uh, I mean, people were going crazy about it. You know, they were saying, hey, it's Andreas Antonopoulos. We have to get this big room and then, and, 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 and it's there, there is some kind of personality cult, I mean, sometimes, you know, um, but I think it's just natural. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, we cannot really await it. With Bitcoin, I found it interesting that eventually the, as a whole, you know, the network, it doesn't really care, you know, um, if there are human beings and also if human beings who are really uh, prominent in the system make some mistakes, you know, I don't think it affects the system that much after all, you know, maybe as it affects uh, the system we know, uh, like uh, from the traditional world, you know, maybe uh, if we draw an example or, or or say, let's look at the, the Watergate, um, you know, a scandal we had in the US with President Richard Nixon, you know, when this came out, you know, um, um, there was a human failure behind this, there was corruption and all these things, you know, we don't have to elaborate on this. But eventually what came out of this was a whole new uh, swath, you know, of regulation and laws and then and all these uh, laws were implemented and all these regulations, they begot like another intervention spiral eventually. And I think, uh, so you always, you try to make the system secure, but eventually you might just make it insecure. And that's something I would argue don't really have, uh, or not to the great extent, at least on the protocol level, and then and also maybe on the social consensus level, uh, you don't have it either with Bitcoin, you know, and that's something I think find uh, really interesting, yeah. Let me ask you about Switzerland specifically. Um, you know, obviously, 
the banking system there uh, is is infamous, I guess, uh, maybe both good and bad over the, over the past century about uh, privacy rights for individuals or governments and uh, things that have gone on there. Uh, obviously, we have this um, phrase "crypto valley," which I believe is applied to Switzerland. Like you said, there's a lot of action in Switzerland, a lot of uh, speakers coming there, a lot of uh, a lot of ICOs are headquartered there, for better or for worse. What are your thoughts on the way that Swiss regulators will approach? Uh, let's let's keep it with Bitcoin specifically. Um, obviously, considering you know what. Congressman Sherman has <laughs> juxtaposing that with someone like Congressman Sherman in the United States. Yeah, sure. I mean, Swiss officials, they have always been really open uh, towards Bitcoin, I would argue. I mean, uh, I read uh, or I, I've written another article on libertarianism.org about Switzerland and, and its history and, and also then how it applies to the whole crypto valley or crypto nation um, topic, you know, I mean, it was by one of our leaders, if you want to call him a leader, it was just a guy from, from government who said um, or who called uh, for the crypto nation Switzerland, you know, eventually because, and uh, he, this also shows probably that, uh, yeah, I mean, regulators and politicians were also, were always pretty open towards the system because I think there is this innate tendency within Swiss, you know, to have like an inherent uh, understanding for decentralization and maybe for for structures that are pretty distributed. And, and, and this is also, uh, I would argue, really uh, the nature of, of these crypto networks, uh, especially Bitcoin. And then, so yeah, you had uh, this... Um, yeah, really uh, harmonious, uh, um, yes, interplay between these two, um, uh, um, yeah, actors. I mean, uh, going forward, uh, Switzerland is, uh, yeah, it, it is open towards uh, Bitcoin, I would argue. Um, I don't know how things are going to develop if, uh, like, uh, Bitcoin eventually is going against uh, the nation state, you know, uh, of which Switzerland is also one. If then Switzerland is going to change gears and then say, okay, we're, we're going into another direction now and then we're got to approach it a little harsher, you know, I don't know. What I kind of fear uh, over here in Switzerland that the nation state um, could also kind of misuse the whole um, you like uh, hype and frenzy that is now going on you know here in Switzerland with, with crypto and um, that he could start implementing or digitizing um, our whole financial system you know finance or dig or yeah the financial system is going becoming more uh, digital but in a bad way, you know, not in a crypto way, but in a way where banks and central or the central banks and other third party providers are ha having the last word, you know, where they can oversee all the transactions and that crypto could actually be used, you know, to to sell uh, this whole development um, to, to its citizens, you know. So uh, over here in Switzerland, um, towards like uh, cash, we still, uh, many people say cash is so important and we would never want to like uh, get rid of it, you know, maybe as in other countries uh, like Sweden or something. But I wouldn't be so surprised in a couple of years if maybe we, 
in Switzerland still um, abandon cash because um, because of our decentralized identity, you know, uh, here in Switzerland, we have high trust um, in in central or in our institutions, you know, and this high trust in our institutions could then actually be used against us because unknowingly, because uh, we just think uh, everything is going to be fine. But then you never know if, if everything is going to be tracked through third-party providers because the whole financial system is becoming ever more digital. Yeah, this could not turn out this well. So eventually Switzerland could then ironically be a country um, that it's not really nice to live in for a libertarian-minded person. Let's hope that uh, your direct democracy and uh, maybe more uh, direct involvement from the people can uh, shine positively there because, uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, countries like Sweden have tried it. They've actually added more cash back to the system uh, just recently, although they have been taking physical cash down uh, over the past decade, I should say. And, uh, you know, we have this exhibit on the monetary base on our website. About 20 trillion is uh, actual global basic money and maybe 35, 40% of that is hard physical cash, uh, you know, so seven, seven, eight trillion. That's still a lot of money floating around. Bitcoin only has a hundred and, uh, what is it I'm looking right now? $137 billion market cap. So it's, it's quite small compared to the true, uh, amount of currency units outstanding globally. Yes, yeah, sure. This is uh, totally true. Yeah, sure. So we'll see. We'll see. Pascal, it's, uh, it's getting close to the hour here. It's been really, really interesting. I, th I found the article just completely fascinating. I love learning new little tidbits about history um, that I, I hadn't uh, known before, obviously. And uh, Switzerland is just a very unique place. And, and framing that debate, uh, whether you know the industrialization of it was more socialist or more capitalist, was, I, I just think, fascinating. So I just want to ask directly, just to hit it home in case listeners are still wondering, uh, do you make a direct conclusion? Is it Was it more socialist? Was it more capitalist? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, was it more social? Was it more capitalist? Yeah, it's a really hard question. I wouldn't really um, um, dare make a, a absolute or bold or like definite statement on this, you know? Sure. Because, uh, yeah, as I already said with the article, all I tried is um, maybe also write an article for all my friends, you know, saying, hey, look, the way you guys are framing it, because you are absolutely saying it was all capitalist and, and you know, and because of all this capitalist uh, development, we have... Uh, these many failures nowadays, you know, our whole world is uh, environmentally damaged because of all of this. And I would say, hey, look, um, no, it's probably not just all capitalist, you know, because uh, we're just not living in a purely capitalist world, you know. So I would say, yeah, Switzerland, um, yeah, these, these, these um, terms, uh, I don't think they make that much sense. So I also do, wouldn't make a, a complete statement. Uh, but after all, um, yeah, the reader can decide for himself whether he thinks it, it is capitalist or it is socialist. Sure, we won't uh, solve and conclude definitively uh, those questions here on this show, but they are, like I said, very interesting to me, you know, very interesting questions to keep asking. And uh, those are the types of things that, you know, at least politically, socially, they do trigger me. You know, I don't get too triggered about uh, if you're a 
no coiner, an alt coiner, uh, Bitcoin maximalist. But when it comes down to uh, mass tyranny, uh, deportations, and so on and so forth, I definitely think people should people should take them seriously. Yeah, just to hark in, uh, just with a little point, you know, what I'm also trying to do, or what I, what was my goal, or my goal was also to, um, how would I uh, say this, you know, but today when I talk to people who are criticizing our system, you know, and who are saying, you know, uh, it's all um, the market economy that is failing, you know, it's capitalism that is failing. I mean, with their arguments, when they uh, mention them, I would say they always have like a kernel of truth to them, you know. I mean, almost every argument that is leveled against the market economy today, somehow, yeah, it's it's not that far-fetched, you know, because there are these problems, you know. But then I would go a step further back and say, yeah, let's look at the problem and the origin itself, you know. And, and, and then you can probably see that uh, something which is uh, in, a, in its form capitalistic um, is filled with content um, that is not that capitalistic, you know, maybe, uh, yeah, to use uh, the term socialist again. And then you kind of see that uh, these things are just blown out of proportion, as I already said, you know, and that lets you understand um, maybe what's happening today a little better, you know, and then you can say, okay, uh, I was maybe a pretty, little bit too straightforward with my conclusion. Okay, no, it's not all capitalism. You're right, if you understand what I mean. I loved uh, Friedrich Hayek's intro to his, I think it was Road to Serfdom, where he dedicated the book to socialists of all parties. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I thought that yes, was, exactly, uh, yeah. That's the best way to frame it. Pascal, um, this has really been interesting. Uh, as we close it, why don't you tell our listeners a bit more about what you're doing? I believe you have a book in the works uh, about Bitcoin, which is fantastic. And, uh, you know, anything else that you uh, have going on these days? Yeah, sure. No, uh, it's actually just my book that's keeping me awake all day and night, actually. Um, yes, uh, it's really interesting. I mean, with this article I wrote, you know, this uh, inspired me to really you know, uh, go further. And I think uh, I'm trying to also with a few chapters in my book, I mean, first, I just want to describe Bitcoin. I want to, you know, um, really get the gist of, of what this whole new thing is about, you know, and and, and then also uh, maybe say uh, a few words uh, or in the chapters to other crypto networks, especially Ethereum, you know, and then you maybe describe the conflict of visions you have between Ethereum and Bitcoin you know and, and then in the end but I also want to like um, in the sense of or in the spirit I would say of the book the individual sovereign I think it's called or the sovereign individual yeah, exactly that's uh, that's the title of the book uh, which is also quite uh, often mentioned um, um, with Bitcoin or in the same yeah, in the same word. And yes, um, there in the few last chapters, I'm really trying to say or depict where things are going, you know, and, and, and this is then the whole article on Escher and in the 19th century, I think this is where it all started, you know, with modern day capitalism, let's call it uh, modern day capitalism. Although we just uh, talked about why it's probably not capitalism. But yeah, it all started with this, you know, and then... Um, 
um, this was a, a time of, of great development. You know, as I already alluded to it, there was a, the marginal productivity of the system was pretty high in the beginning. And now maybe 200, 250 years later, we're coming to a point where we're figuring out um, maybe the marginal productivity of the system is not that high anymore because the marginal productivity of debt is also decreasing, you know, and you're getting ever less out of uh, debt that is uh, newly created, you know. And so um, I think we're at a crossroads now, you know, that the system, the old system, the modern day capitalism is really challenged by new institutions, you know, and these new institutions, they will probably develop out of uh, crypto or blockchain protocols, you know, and uh, Bitcoin being the most prominent one. Uh, we don't know yet if it's going to be the only one or if there are other things that uh, will be uh, valuable valuable uh, in the end. But I think so we're really at the crossroad of, of a new era that we're entering, you know, and I described it in my book also, the, the era, the old era of modern day capitalism was uh, described by Alfred Escher, you know, and then these entrepreneurs and the new ones is gonna be described by the new people like Satoshi and, 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 and the like, you know, and maybe other anonymous developer and open source guys who launch uh, these products and yeah so uh, I think we're really yeah entering a new era this is what makes it so interesting and that's what I'm describing in my book and yeah this uh, hope to really uh, yeah can kind of look into the future I also incorporating comics you know oh, nice. to loosen it up a little bit because the topic is uh, really complicated and is really dense so uh, these comics they will just be funny you know and uh hope uh, the reader will like that as well. So this is really what I'm working on right now. Did you outsource the comics? Yes, I outsourced them to a friend of mine who's a really good drawer and uh, yeah, he's drawing it for me and then we're uh, incorporating them into the book and eventually it's, uh, yeah, it's hopefully coming out uh, in June in German first and then afterwards, maybe a month or two later in English as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Great questions to ask. I certainly think that the next few years, the typical say in the next few years, are going to be very, very interesting in Bitcoin and uh, the financial world. Let's hope for some uh, capitalism in the positive way and peace uh, when it comes to the Bitcoin markets. It's certainly uh, going to be interesting as the price goes up and the FOMO goes up. Pascal, uh, any Twitter feeds, links, uh, where else can our listeners go to find you? Yeah, sure. No, I'm mainly on Twitter. I'm only just started actually a few months ago, maybe, and I'm trying to yeah, build up a community now, but uh, that's the, where I am. So you can also reach out to me anytime. I love the discussion. I love to talk about uh, various things, uh, as you probably figured out, not just crypto, but crypto is one big sure. topic I'm really interested in. But I think it's also it ties into a lot of things. So you end up uh, in philosophy, you end up in biology, you can end up anywhere, starting from crypto. So that's the cool thing about it. So yes, uh, this is where I'm at. And yeah, you uh, yeah, maybe also just uh, I publish a lot of in German as well. So if there are any German people listening, you can also find me on a few German spots. <laughs> Fantastic. We will link to all of it in the show notes. Pascal, I really appreciate it. It was nice meeting you. Nice talking. And definitely wish you all the best in the future with your book. And I uh, hope to talk to you soon. Hey, Matthew, thank you very much for having me. It was a great experience. And yeah, 
talk to you soon. Thank you, Pascal. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.